0: Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hello everyone. My name is David Kershaw. I'm the Dean of the LSE Law School. I'm also a member of LSE Council, which is our governing body and I'm delighted to be able to welcome you here tonight. Thank you so much uh, for coming. Thank you to everyone also uh, who is uh, online. Uh, We've got a a wonderful event tonight and I'm particularly delighted uh, to be able to welcome uh, Hannah Barnes and Professor uh, Lucinda Platt who will be in conversation uh, tonight. Um, Hannah Barnes, as I'm sure many of you know, um, is a journalist uh, um, at the BBC's flagship current affairs programme Newsnight, she is a uh, investigative and analytical, an analytical journalist uh, with Newsnight um, who uh, is very well known for producing some of the most respected and important long-form radio uh, uh, programs and documentaries over the past uh, decade. Um, Hannah led on the BBC's uh, coverage of the care that young people have, uh, young people uh, with uh, gender-related uh, Uh, issues leading uh, to uh, the NHS's uh, review of the care provided uh, to those people. And most importantly of all, uh, for purposes of tonight's event, Hannah is the author of uh, A Time to Think, the inside story of the collapse of the Tavistock's gender service uh, for children, which we'll be talking about tonight. Welcome, Hannah. Professor Lucinda Platt is Professor of Social Policy uh, and Sociology uh, in the Social Policy Department here at the London School of Economics. Her research focuses upon uh, uh, child cognitive and emotional development and the special uh, educational needs of children. Uh, She is the author of Understanding Inequalities, Stratification, and Difference. Uh, So welcome, Lucinda. Um, and tonight, Lucinda and Hannah are going to be in conversation, uh, talking uh, about uh, Hannah 's book, "A Time A Time to Think." Um, Hannah and Lucinda will be talking for about 40 minutes in conversation, uh, and then we'll open up the conversation. Uh, to all of you and to all of you online for everyone online uh, In the top left hand corner I don't know where the camera is actually it's probably over there in the top left hand corner There is a Q&A button for you to ask questions that they will c- come through to uh, My iPad and finally I have to remember even though I'm a bit of a Luddite We have a Twitter hashtag which is LSE time to uh, think so without further ado uh, Hannah, Lucinda, over to you.
1: Thank you very much, David. Um, and uh, thank you very much, Hannah, for, for coming to talk um, uh, today. Um, so um, uh, and uh, I just wanted to um, ask you a few things about um, about uh, the book. I mean, what you seem to have uncovered here is a kind of major um, medical scandal that affected um, the lives of um, numbers of um, young children who were put in experimental treatment. And we don't really understand what the outcomes from, 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 from your account in your book um, and you've given a huge amount of um, testimony and documentation of, of this um, complex and troubling service of the uh, Gender Identity Development Service um, how it began with the intention of providing support for children with gender dysphoria but somehow um, became stuck in a model that seemed to lose track of safeguarding concerns as you, as you document um, and this was despite the, you know, the clearly well intentioned motivations of of those um, wishing to respond to children's distress. Um, so I've got, I've got a got number of, number of questions that I'd like to explore with you about that. But I just thought I'd start with asking you, um, you know, how you how you came to how you came to write this book, how you came to arrive at the story that was um, first aired on, on newsnight, and how you got interested in the topic.
2: I think I first came across the topic at all back in twenty seventeen. Probably I was on maternity leave with my first child and had a bit more time, and there was a the odd article in um, in newspapers. And I saw a, a television documentary about the situation in Canada where um, a gentleman called Ken Zucker, his clinic had, for children had been closed because he was accused of conversion therapy. Um, he was later paid damages by the hospital for that. For that. And they said that he, he shouldn't have been sacked. But, but that's what had happened. And, and really didn't think that much more of it until sort of I guess late 2018 and 2019, and that's when we learn of the existence of a report by Dr. David Bell, uh, and then later it, its contents were, were leaked. Um, and essentially what had happened here is that Dr. David Bell worked in the adult service of, of the Tavistock Trust, but at that time he had a role on what's known as the Council of Governors, which is kind of a... Uh, they're, they're meant to sort of oversee the board as well, and he he was the staff representative and and 10 members of staff from from JIDS, from the Gender Identity Development Service, had gone to him, really quite worried about what was going on in the service. Um, They said that many of the young people they were caring for were very vulnerable and had quite serious difficulties they were contending with alongside their gender-related distress. And some were being referred for puberty blockers, as we colloquially refer them to, quite quickly, after just one or two hours in, in some rare cases. Um, and there, there were multiple other things that they were very worried about. So I think I saw those, and I just thought, as, as journalists should, well, there's a story here. I had no idea whether their concerns were valid, but I thought it, it deserved to be explored Uh, And quite early on I I met um, Dr. Anna Hutchinson who had left JITS but but had been a member of the senior team there and and was very concerned. I met Dr. Hutchinson in in May 2019 and the very next day, actually I was late which I was mortified about, my train broke down so I turned up sweaty and flustered, um, which is not a great starting point but there you go. Um, And uh, the next day there was this event at the House of Lords. which, which Dr Hutchinson attended, and so and the head of press from, from the Tavistock was there, and during this meeting, um, a lady called Sue Evans spoke up and said, "Well, I, I worked there, you know, 15 years ago, and I blew the whistle." I thought this is extraordinary. Like never heard of this woman, and, and afterwards was was talking with her and, and and with Anna, and yeah, that just sort of I was sort of gripped by then. Uh, And and why the book? Well, we did four quite lengthy films at Newsnight and several articles, but I just knew so much more than we could ever air. I mean, absolutely not because we were blocked in any way, but there's only so much you can do. Um, And I thought this was a story that needed to be told, and I thought that the stories of the young people and the clinicians, and and certainly some clinicians really wanted that conversation to, to come out of the clinic and into broader society about what they felt the risks were here, um, you know, and the balance of risks. Of course, there's, there's a risk to not treating just as there is a, a risk to, to treating. So, yeah, that, that, that was the main motivation. Um, and as part of that, you spoke to a large number of
1: um, number of people. So you've, you've um, contacted, I think it was 60 people? To... Yeah,
2: I contacted probably 60 or so clinicians <laughs> who'd, worked, who'd worked at JIDS spanning 25 30 years, um, you know, not all of those spoke to me, but, but overall I did more than that number of interviews for the book and and everybody that I spoke to had some direct relationship, it's very focused, it's not an ideological piece of writing at all, it's an evidence-based look at part of our NHS and so everybody I spoke to was either a clinician who had worked directly with the, with the young people the young people themselves, who'd gone through the service, who were now adults, um, people who'd worked in the wider Tavistock Trust—so JIDS is, is one unit, I suppose, as part of a wider NHS trust—or um, people that had been directly involved with some kind of legal action.
1: Yeah, and, and, you, and you include throughout the throughout the book, you include some of the testimonies of the children themselves, some yeah. detailed accounts. Um, I think some of them are anonymised. Uh, yeah, I mean, it is, but, but they provide the, 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 some of these real inside stories of what it went like, what it was like to go through the, sto- through the service,
2: both the positives and the, exactly. And the negatives. Exactly, very, very different experiences from different people and um, they're grateful to all of them for, for trusting me with their stories and, and being so open and honest. And I think you know, one takeaway from those collective stories is that <laughs> no one pathway is gonna suit every single young person. For some, I certainly spoke with some young people for whom medical and surgical transition has been really successful and they're happy living lives as, as, as trans adults. And spoke to others who had um, you know, come through their distress and had not, just, had not transitioned and, and were you know, happy with their bodies and, and who they were, and, and others who, who had been harmed by, by the interventions that they'd received. So a real, a real mix.
1: And uh, and thinking of the the, the, the evidence evidence base, I mean, um, uh, the time to think of the title, I think, refers to the idea that um, putting on children, children, a child experiencing gender-related distress on puberty blockers would give them time to explore their feelings uh, while mitigating their initial distress. Um, But it didn't seem to work out this way, did it? It seemed to be that um, um, even though there was existing evidence um, from, from what information was known that most of those um, experiencing gender dysphoria would end up not identifying as trans in the long term and many very many would end up as gay identifying as gay you report how um, in the single research study that was conducted on those under sixteen who were provided puberty blockers nearly hundred percent of them went on to cross sex hormones um, and you also think elsewhere in the, in the book note that the head of the service um, Dr. Polly Carmichael herself noted questioningly that of 162 children given puberty blockers by 2016 only two had stopped treatment. Mm. So they were all, they were all persisting. So what this time to think, what was happening here?
2: Well there are different answers depending on who you ask. Time to think, the rationale for the blocker made perfect sense if you think about it. So the idea was is that a young person who has a different gender identity to the to the sex they were born it's very distressing for them to be going through puberty and because they don't identify with that sex so you pause the puberty and therefore alleviate some of that distress and give them time to think that actually makes completely perfect sense but the blocker acting in that way has only ever been a hypothesis and in fact the, the Dutch team that pioneered the, this approach to, to healthcare, the, the, to medical transition for, for children, they, they found in fact their studies that, that every single one of the, the young people that went on the blocker uh, went on to cross-sex hormones. So the idea that you would use it as this exploratory phase was never really borne out by any data whatsoever, but what happened in JIDS's case um, was, you know, a, a, as you said, in, in in one particular study, 98%, so one person out of 44, didn't did didn't continue at the age of 16 on to, to hormones, uh, and then and the larger number at that point, 2 out of 162, I think you said, didn't you? But, um, so, one argument is that JIDS were incredibly thorough at selecting the young people who were most likely to persist in their trans identity and would become trans adults. And therefore, it's not surprising that you get this 100% figure, because they've done a really rigorous assessment. And they've only chosen those people to go forward who they think will most likely stay trans. Um, the the difficulty with that argument from the clinicians and the young people I've spoken to is that actually they say well those assessments weren't always very good they weren't always very thorough Um, and there are clinicians who've put their name to comments in the book which hold their hands up and say I did some work that I'm not proud of and some of those assessments were poor and we didn't always select those young people who had this lifelong sense of, uh, of gender incongruence, which was the group for whom this intervention was, was, was designed for. There's also an argument put forward by the clinicians, which was, what, what are the chances of, of young people being given time to think, and actually them all thinking? Exactly the same way, because their experience of working with young people in distress in other situations was that that just tends not to happen. You know, teenagers are volatile, and you know, we've all been we've all been teenagers. Um, and they thought that was just really odd. And also, the way the model worked at JIDS was even if they had this time to think, they weren't given any space to explore those feelings because actually once a young person went onto to blockers, the frequency of their appointments went down, not up. So they would only see a professional at JIDS maximum four times a year, maximum, but but sometimes less. So, but but we, we don't know any of this for certain. We don't know how they act because of the way studies in this, this area have been designed. There's never a control group. I mean, obviously you can't have a blinded trial, you know you know if your puberty's blocked or not but there's never been any control we don't have long-term follow-up of, of uh, you know a sizable number of, of young people so it's unknown so that that
1: takes me on to the um... Uh, the question of, of of the evidence i mean i was i was uh, um, coming from a from an institution that uh, rather prides itself on being evidence-based here at the LSE, and um, that, uh we uh, collect evidence, and we debate it, and we compare different positions based on it, Um, I was really struck by the fact that there just seemed to be no um, systematic collection or collation of evidence about these children, even though this was recognised, it seems, by most of the people involved, even those who who were convinced they were doing something very good, that this was an experimental treatment, and they didn't know what the long-term consequences would be. Um, and that they knew there had been concerns about, for example, bone density. But, but from what what you report here, that despite your sort of repeated efforts to find information, to find data, um, there are, there, are there, there is no there is no evidence. We don't know what happened to children as they went through the service, and we don't know what happened to children after they left the service. Is that is that right?
2: Yes. The Short answer, I mean to split out the questions of yep. evidence and then data, so the evidence base is weak, and the science here is not settled so there are studies which purport to show that young people who who take, who, who receive puberty blockers have self reported increases in mental health and, and satisfaction but they're all quite methodologically flawed um, and they've been highly critiqued and the only study which is I mean the, the best study in this field are these two Dutch studies from 2011 and 2014 and crucially when JIDS tried to replicate those findings they couldn't so in 2011 acknowledging that the evidence base was was quite weak and there were limited data albeit quite promising at that point from the Dutch, JITS did the right thing and they said, look, we do have these concerns about what blocking puberty might do to your bone density, to cognitive development. Those haven't gone away, but there appears to be this treatment which seems to be helping a small selected group of people who are extremely distressed. So we need to add to that evidence base and conduct our own research. That was the right thing to do, and there were questions about the design of that, but the approach was correct. But then, quite strikingly, rather than wait for the data from their own study to come back, in 2014, they rolled out the early blocking of puberty as standard practice. And at that point, they had only just recruited the final participants to the study. There really were was, were, were, plural, singular, no data, no meaningful data at all from how those young people had fared. And that, for me, is a really huge turning point in this story, because it brings in the accountability of others as well. I mean, this we'll come to it, I'm sure, but NHS England is the commissioner of JIDS. It is... Really, quite striking that they allowed this to happen without asking to see any data, when the rationale for doing the study in the first place was the evidence isn't there yet. So, those 44 people who were part of that original study, I'm told by the, by the by the lead investigator, um, Professor Russell Viner, that there is actually consent to to follow those up and in th- them into uh, adulthood. Um, but but I I don't know what's happening there. But the the, the evidence base really has not advanced in 10, 20 years. The the Dutch studies are still the best that we have. Um, There are no long-term data. Um, And in terms of data collection that you mentioned, well, yes, it it would appear that, although this clinic's been running for 30 years, we, we have no idea really how the young people that they've seen have fared. Both those who have received physical interventions and those who haven't. And both are really important to know what's happened to them. And we don't at the moment. And the independent review that's being carried out now by Dr Hilary Cass and her team are trying to find out. But it's striking that JIDS were not able to provide quite basic data to the High Court when they were asked. They couldn't say how many young people had been referred for puberty blockers. They could provide one year of data only. We, didn't, we don't know how old they are, what the age breakdown is, what the sex breakdown is, how many were prescribed hormones at JIDS. We don't know how many went to adult services. Um, JIDS haven't been able to say how many young people have chosen to preserve their fertility while under their care. They seemingly haven't been able to say what other issues young people might be contending with. Now, there was an attempt to do this back in 2000, and it was very, very detailed. It looked at every single young person that had been through the clinic at that point, um, all of whom were experiencing distress around their gender. Absolutely no one questioned that, but, but often many other things besides. And the idea was that the more you learn about your patient population I use that really loosely not to not to pathologize these young people but the more you know about the people you're trying to help the better you can make that care and the idea was that that would then continue but it didn't and it's anyone's guess as, uh, as to why now it could be that they haven't collected any data but but several clinicians and young people I've spoken to say well we collected loads of data so where is it Maybe it's just not in a collatable form, but, but I'm told that the data will be there in these young people's notes. You just have to go through them. But as to what is available to the public, no, we don't know much. And how many, how many young people are we talking about here? It's difficult to put a precise number on it. I mean, the, it, it's about 10,000 probably that have gone through, maybe a bit more. I mean, the waiting far more than that have been referred but, um, uh, but obviously, the waiting list is, is, is really, really quite big at the moment. It's about 80,000 or so young people.
1: That's huge numbers
2: yeah. so of, of young people who are eventually... You
1: know, yeah. And, and also, too, I in, mean, terms, not all in all terms of an like, expert service... Yeah, and, and not all, all have been
2: referred for medical interventions. Absolutely not. But, but we need to know what's happened to all of those young people, what, what's helped them, what hasn't helped. Did some people not receive the care that they should have done? Did people receive care that wasn't appropriate for them? We don't know. Yeah. Um, and
1: Yes, and I guess we have to wait to see what um, Hillary Cass manages to achieve to see to learn yeah. a bit more about that. Um, and you mentioned in passing, you mentioned about the uh, the commissioners, commissioning the service. So so where were they in all this, or uh, the... Um, and the and the senior management of the Tavistock where were they in terms of they weren't very present I mean <laughs> is this I mean uh, I you might know more about about the um, I mean is this is this normal in commissioning services that they're, that
2: they're I I well I I honestly don't know the answer to that I'm not I'm not a specialist health journalist but I I think I, I've seen no evidence of any kind of conspiracy or anything like that I mean so JID's fits into specialist commissioning in the NHS. And there are many, many other services that fit into that. And I think talking to, 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 you know, to, to health sources in NHS England, I think it just, for, 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 for several years, it just wasn't on their radar. There was, you know, there's so much else going on. And that's not an excuse, it doesn't let them off the hook, but I don't think there was any willful ignoring of it. And I think some people they've been honest about the fact they were too slow to act when concerns were raised. It's a viewpoint that several clinicians put to me about why there was such a lack of oversight from NHS England, well, you know, and the media and politicians and regulators was just for some reason in this area the word gender is mentioned and it muddies the waters in some way. One clinician described it as a kind of cloak of mystery that everyone assumed that we couldn't touch it because it was special, but they must know what they're doing, and there was this fear that if you question too much, you know, you might be accused of being transphobic, and so kind of the normal oversight that you'd have of a of a clinical service it wasn't there, and that's something again that Dr. Cass has highlighted, that that those measure that sort of checks and balances, if you like, that, that you'd expect when innovative treatments are used on young people, they haven't been there in this case.
1: Yeah, I mean, and particularly with young people, I mean, I've, I've been involved in research with young people and it, it always seemed that there was a, there was a huge amount of, um, sort of care and attention and, and sort of ethical um, uh, scrutiny um, of that, because because of the because of the issues around um, mm. young people's
2: vulnerability. Yeah, and of course, moment. like the, the puberty blockers used in this context, they're they're prescribed um, off-label, which isn't unusual when when drugs are given to children. But they're licensed to treat precocious puberty, and they, they work quite differently when 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 used in this context. So the argument, really, that many put forward is the evidence base: precocious puberty can't. You know, it doesn't really strictly apply here. But one, one issue that was interesting was this um,
1: uh, issue of capacity to consent and consent processes. So um, um, I think what, what, one of your respondents at one point said, you know, that responsibility for the decision that uh, she says she says it was impossible to know who, who the, the, um, the treatment was right for. She, she, she was very much, she was clearly um, very supportive of the service, but judged that it was impossible to know who would be the right recipients and who wouldn't be the right recipients of the treatment and that therefore some responsibility had to lie um, with the children, child's parents but also with the child themselves. Um, so that brings us into the issue of sort of consent and decision making and, and, um, and um, uh, about, about a, a treatment that has potentially uh, long term <coughs> consequences. Um, and has uh, consequences such as loss of fertility and loss of sexual function that it might be quite hard for, for young children to, to grasp or even talk about. Um, um, and, 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 and child consent is generally considered kind of kind of quite a sensitive issue. But one where there's a kind of lot of there's, there is quite a lot of understanding of what is possible and what is impossible in the realm of um, consent among children of different ages. Um, so, so what, what was what was Jid's practice here, and um, and, and did it evolve? it we did evolve about, so until say.
2: 2019 there weren't any codified consent processes or processes for gaining consent from children at JIDS. that's something that came out of a review into the service that was that was led by the medical director so up to that point it was ad hoc really and and when the cqc inspected jids they found that there weren't records of consent for, for 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 some of the young people that had been referred for medical interventions. Uh, And even when the system had changed, they still found that it wasn't happening in all cases. They couldn't find the paperwork. It was certainly something that many of the clinicians I spoke to were concerned about prior to those processes changing. But even afterwards, in that when they felt that consent wasn't being taken seriously seriously enough, especially when they learned that the data appeared to show that the vast majority, if not all, young people who started the blocker went on to cross-sex hormones. So um, Natasha Prescott, Dr Natasha Prescott in the book, Dr Anna Hutchinson, several of them said, once we got that data, we actually completely changed our practice. because if, And they believed that consenting to the blocker was really almost as, as serious as consenting to, to hormones, which do bring about irreversible changes to the body. Because in all likelihood, that young person w- w- would go on to that stage as well. So, and, and obviously that's where infertility comes in. The, the blocker doesn't bring about infertility. And
1: Though I understood that for boys who were pre pubertal, like,
2: well, if you stop, if, if they, they
1: stop, yes, it could come back. Yes.
2: Yeah, yeah. So, so the blocker in and of itself doesn't 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 affect fertility in that sense. But obviously, if, if puberty is blocked early enough, and then someone goes on to cross-sex hormones, they will, it will, they will be infertile. But um, there was this, the, and 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 Jids has absolutely, in more recent years, put far more emphasis on fertility and preserving it. And that didn't used to happen, and it was it, it was the and, and they do talk about it a lot now. Um, and that's something that really came across um, with interviews as well with young people. Some would question, though, whether that's enough, and that whether if you're 14 or 15, even if someone talks to you about your fertility and preserving it, a particularly for females, it's not a very easy process it's quite you know harvesting eggs and freezing them is quite invasive Um, b even though those conversations started to be had there were questions about whether the young people could could really truly understand what that might be like like most teenagers don't want to have children they don't see themselves as grown-ups and and having children at some point in the future so those questions remain and obviously some of those arguments were aired in court. Um, and uh, ultimately, the, the, the courts decided that it, w- it was up to, to doctors to decide whether the young people could consent um, w- with their parents.
1: Thinking about the, about the um, you mentioned mentioning girls in particular, I think the, the, the composition of the caseload changed dramatically. How am I doing for time, David?
0: Doing good. You're doing good. You have, yeah. I think, about 15 minutes left to go.
1: Um, the, the, so, so not only was there a sort of dramatic increase in the volume of referrals, um, and that seemed to bring its own, own challenges that suddenly they were dealing with a much greater volume, volume of referrals to deal with, but the composition changed and went from being, so it was very, if you refer to the Dutch studies, it went from being very unlike those in the Dutch studies and was predominantly, um, the majority were, were girls and also those who... Started experiencing gender distress after they'd started puberty. Mm-hmm. So, 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 how 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 do we understand this? What was what was going on that
2: meant that there were these dramatic changes in the condition of them? It's kind of the sixty-four million dollar question: yeah. what's going on? And I think there isn't one explanation, but I think there there are many, and, and these are sort of not my ideas, these are from people who have worked in the field, and and the young people themselves. So there is an argument put forward by JIDS and other gender clinics across the world that the rise in numbers can be explained by greater awareness of trans people, greater social acceptance. And I think that is probably the case for for some of the young people that went to JIDS. And certainly, uh, for example, one of the the young people I speak to in the book, uh, a young trans man called Jack, that really fits his story he had this lifelong sense of gender incongruence he, ne- he always felt he was a boy not not female that he'd been born um and it wasn't until he could put a name to it that he went no that's me i'm trans and he's he's a happy trans man now he's transitioned well over a decade it doesn't explain the really rapid increase though and particularly among girls in its entirety, it just can't and you know there are others who I spoke to who said for for them it was a way of understanding why they felt really quite unhappy, it was a way of uh, escaping their own internalised homophobia for one person Um, and this is something that the clinicians raised a lot, particularly in the girls many of them had had same-sex relationships or had same-sex attraction before they identified as trans and they, they didn't want to be lesbians for, for whatever reason. For some girls, it... Like, we live... It's quite hard to be a teenage girl anyway, but clinicians just saw that there were some girls who were trying to escape what society... what they thought society expected of them. We live in this quite hyper environment and if you if you're not uber feminine or whatever that means you know if you're not fulfilling the stereotype of what you think girlhood is, womanhood is then again it was a way of escaping that for some and even even the world World professional association for transgender healthcare WPATH even they acknowledge in their recent standards of care, that for some young people there will be an element of influence from their, their peers as well. And that certainly is the case from, from, from some young people I spoke to as well, who said lots of my friends were trans or non-binary, and it brought with it popularity and, and, and certainly happiness originally. So I, I think there are all kinds of reasons. Uh, it's, not, it's not an easy one to answer. Um, and th- and that, that also relates to,
1: to another point I had, which was um, um, I was quite uh, um, quite shocked by the, um, uh, live, you know, sort of existing in a, a sort of metro environment where um, sexuality really doesn't seem, you know, doesn't seem to be a big deal anymore. That um, this, uh, um, the extent of kind of homophobia, not only the discussions about um, internalised homophobia, but some of the clinicians reporting that there was just daily homophobia um, expressed in the clinic. Yeah, not clear. by I staff, was, not was, by staff, I was, I was no. assuming right. this was by the, yes, the, the yeah, parents yeah. and the
2: families, and yeah, yeah. sometimes the children themselves. I think it's a point that people, you know, probably in this room and on this stage really struggle with, because, like you say, I make some huge assumptions about you all, but, you know, I imagine you're, you're intelligent and probably left-leaning and liberal, and... Uh, yeah, it's surprising that in the 21st century young people would be a young people wouldn't feel comfortable being gay or coming out as gay um, but but also that that families would not accept it but I have to say it was overwhelming the testimony fr- from those who both spoke favorably about JIDS and those who were critical that so many of the young people was struggling with their sexuality or were facing homophobic environments, either at school, at home, or, or just struggling with themselves. It was absolutely overwhelming, the number of clinicians that brought that up, the proportion, and and some of the young people themselves who, who were open about it as well. Um, so I don't think... I think homophobia is really still quite rife, particularly in our schools. And the clinicians would say, I just couldn't believe the language I was hearing from some of the young people and their families in front of me, like, you know, slurs that you thought had gone away, these slurs from the 80s. And it's but it's there, it's there in the data as well. And I think the clinicians, some of whom were gay themselves, who were accused, they say, of being too close to the work and therefore seeing, seeing this where it perhaps wasn't there, they'd say, well, look at the data. So in the Dutch study, all of the birth-registered females, the girls, all of them were same-sex attracted or, or bisexual. I think one of the boys wasn't about 94%, it, it translates to. In Jids's own very limited data, from this is from the cohort that were referred in 2012, so it's, it's limited, but, you know, 90% of the girls were either same-sex attracted or bisexual. Um, I think it's, what is it for the boys? It's very, very high. 70% maybe. And even in more de- more recent data, it came down a bit. But but it, it, it's still incre- incredibly high. So we we don't know the true numbers. We don't know exactly what's going on. But what the clinicians were saying is that often, look, we need to think about this. Because often, a young person who transitioned didn't just change their... Gender identity, they would change their sexuality as well. That was a byproduct, but not always, but often.
1: And and I was interested. That one of your respondents uh, seemed to be suggesting that, um, um, or, or you're raising the question: Is it um, uh, more comfortable in a kind of in this non-accepting environment? Is it then more comfortable um, to live um, as, a, say, a trans woman rather than a gay man, or a trans man rather than a lesbian? Um, is this is this sort of providing that, that alternative way of being? Is that is that a, is that a justification for medical intervention? Um, what question? I, d- I don't think rate? it's for me
2: to say whether there's a justification. Yeah. Of, um, I think I'll pass on that one. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> but it seemed to be a
2: a discussion that was being. It was. It was, was a being just, it, Yeah, and the, and that clinician that you mentioned said, "Is that a helpful question?" they saw it as how is this person going to live the best life for them in the circumstances that they live in? So is it helpful to ask, is this person trans or is this person gay? Or really is it what's going to work best for them? And the point they would make is that we don't live in this ideal world that perhaps we think we do, where everybody is accepting of everybody. We live in the world that we live in. and, and that example that that, that, that that clinician gives, she says that that young person had thought about it a lot and that's what they wanted to do, so that's what they were supported in doing.
1: So um, I'm aware there's only a few minutes left for, before we open it up to, up to questions. Um, So I just wanted to say, if you could, you 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 bring the story right up to 2022, um, um, and at that point um, there was the announced closure of JIDs. There had been um, some, there had been a a review, there had been some investigation, there had been, in particular, there had been the CAS CAS report, which, um, and following that, um, the. Uh, the the commissioners were were looking at a new model, a Mm -hmm. new service model. So I just wondered if you could bring us up to 2023 and say, where are we now? Service and the new
3: model.
2: Just last week, NHS England have said that there's going to be a delay to the new hubs, as they've called them, opening. Originally, the plan had been for JIDS to close, well by now really, by spring 2023, and that isn't going to happen. It's going to be replaced initially by two hubs, one, one here in London and another in the north of England. The southern one, there's now saying, will be open autumn time, um, and the northern one not till March 2024, so it looks like JIDS will remain open until at least spring 24. In the meantime it's a really quite dire situation for for young people so jids they have struggled with their staffing lots of people have left they can't recruit new staff they they have about a thousand young people that they're currently caring for but they're not able to take on any new um any new cases so The latest figures we have, and actually we're expecting an update very soon from NHS England as to the state of the waiting list, but the the most recent figures we have, which are quite old now, are about 8,000 young people waiting for help. And I think whatever anybody believes is the right way to to care for those young people, and whatever people's views are on medical interventions, no one (laughs) can think... That that is a good place to be with so many young people distressed, needing help, probably different kinds of help for different people and there's nothing there for them. And those young people in some cases have already been waiting years and it's going to take years for them to be seen as well. I mean NHS England have said that there'll be some kind of online help from June. We don't know. I don't know any more than that. Um, and they 've said the reason it 's taking longer than expected is because they' they 're breaking from the past and we 're going to have this new model that 's more holistic and greater em, em, emphasis on mental health and with professionals who have a variety of backgrounds with expertise in safeguarding and autism and, and, and a variety of things but but it 's taking a long time, and there have been some difficulties already, but it's a it's a really poor. State of affairs for, for those young people that, that need help. And from what, you're, you, what you describe in the book,
1: these are often children who are not getting support from anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, exactly. got they're multiple, getting nothing from not multiple, anyone. And they've got multiple challenges and life circumstances and other yeah. um, conditions and problems in
0: their lives mm. <laughs> Right. right. Thank you. thank you Hannah, thank you Lucinda for, for a wonderful and fascinating conversation. We have, uh, we have a, good, a good amount of time, we have about 45 minutes for, for questions. Uh, we're gonna have questions uh, online uh, as well as in the room. Just a reminder for those of you online, um, uh, top uh, right corner I think. <laughs> Check the left if I'm wrong uh, for the Q&A, post a question and the question will come through uh, to this uh, uh, iPad, um, okay. So let's uh, let's start 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 the conversation. I've um, got the person here in a, in a in the in the in the pink. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. Thank you.
3: Right, thank
4: you. That's fascinating. And uh, Tony Hockley from the LSE. Um, I I wonder. Sorry. I, firstly, I haven't finished the book yet. But I'm working through it, so you may have answered this. I wonder how much you've had time to think about the systemic issues. I mean, we we Had loads of focused inquiries in the NHS and most recently on maternity services. And we have a tendency not to look at the big picture of these. I just wonder, you know, the decade that you're looking at, we've seen child mental health services collapse uh, with multi year waiting lists for that. Nationally commissioned services funding has increased 8% a year on average when everything else has not been increasing. And I just wonder how much these big systemic issues. Maybe at the end of the book, you reflect on these
2: big picture things,
0: but I wonder, because we tend not to. Can you take one question at a time, Heather?
2: Yeah, sure. Well, you're absolutely right. And the, the, under-invest, the underinvestment in CAMs, in particular, Child and adolescent Mental Health Services, is a massive part of this story. Um, and JIDS themselves have said that some of the young people that they've tried to help would have been better served by CAMs. And what we saw is, you know, with no, with no f- blame being put on those CAM services, but struggling themselves, there were occasions where a young person would would be with CAMs and would have many other difficulties they were contending with, but would bring up the, the subject of gender and that would be seen as an excuse to get them off their books, bluntly, because they saw this national service, which they saw as a wash with money and they could deal with it. and. It was a massive failure, a massive failure. I mean, and, and so many people brought this up in the book that the underfunding generally of of children's mental health services, um, it, it made JIDS's life very very difficult, absolutely, and that was beyond their control. And and what they wanted, this they were meant to be work, working as according to this, they call it the network model, where, you know, they would deal with the gender difficulties and then other services would, would deal with anything else. Now, people have, would be sceptical of that because they think that the young person should be dealt with as a whole rather than siphoning off these things, but where a young person was supported by lots of different people, they would say it, it worked obviously much better, and, and, and in lots and lots of cases that didn't happen. I mean, clinicians told me that, that CAMs would say on occasion... Look, we'll we'll open the case for you if that's what you need, but we're not going to see them. And it, one one example that really stood out for me, and it was really upsetting, and and this clinician was really upset by it, it was in the book that um, a young person who often talked about taking their own lives or was really quite seriously self-harming, CAMS couldn't. The best they could offer was a CBT app, not. You know that that's that's the dreadful state of affairs. So so absolutely um, the underfunding of, of, of and I, th- I think the overburdening of the NHS, as I mentioned briefly earlier. You know, Jids is it comes under specialist commissioning, and there are I can't remember the precise number, but it's well over a hundred, and it just just wasn't just wasn't a priority. Uh, again, it's no conspiracy, just uh, yeah, <laughs> too much.
0: So, quite a few hands up, but um, you first hear LSE hat.
5: uh Thank you. Yes, uh, Brian Roberts from LSE Philosophy. Uh, applaud the, the uh, aim of evaluating the evidence. Uh, in, in philosophy, there's an issue uh, sometimes called the problem of unknown evidence, where one's concerned that the evidence being evaluated lacks essential components. Uh, and there was this, uh, from February 7th, I think it's a bit uh, late to have made it in the book, but from February 7th, there was a uh, an open letter from 50 out of the 85 GIDS staff, broadly supportive of things like puberty blockers, uh, very concerned about the harm that will come to children due to the closure of Tavistock, and arguing that this was a, a politically motivated closure, not a medically motivated one. And th- these uh, these people didn't make a dramatic appearance in your book it was much more focused on clinicians who were broadly not believing in this sort of health care uh, and so i wonder if you could comment on the concern about about cherry picking um that we're sort of looking at a particular bit of evidence uh, that doesn't include a broad enough base uh, sort of not unlike if i may say having a, a, a panel on trans health issues without any trans people on the panel
2: so i approached clinicians who would worked there and i have spoken to 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 people in the book where people spoke to me and were spoke in favor of the service they're all included in the book um i couldn't if people chose not to speak to me there's not really much i could do about that um i don't think this is a panel about trans healthcare. it's about the book so i do take your point but um i'm the author of the book and i'm not trans but i don't think this is a Panel about trans healthcare, um, and as I say, I have spoken to plenty of trans people in the book who are happy, and their stories are included. But I, I you know, I take your point. If we were having a panel about trans healthcare, of course you should have trans people on it. Um, the open letter. So I, 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 I don't think I've cherry picked at all. I've put, i uh, you know, I've been very happy to include positive stories, both from clinicians and and former service users. I think it's really quite difficult, though, to deny that something's gone wrong here. I mean, young people, some young people have been helped, but I think, and that's not questioned, but some young people have been harmed, and I don't think we can question that either. Just as we shouldn't write off the experience of of happy trans adults who have gone through this process, we, we can't write off those who have been let down either. And I think The evidence base has been looked at independently by NICE and it's been found to be wanting. And that is the same with any systematic review that's been carried out in Sweden, in Finland, I believe in Norway now as well. Um, To question the evidence base isn't questioning the people for whom that evidence base is used. It's actually saying, you deserve better healthcare. Um, You know, there need to be better studies. To, to benefit everybody, both for those for whom medical transition will work and, and, and for those for whom it won't, um, I think you know the service has been rated inadequate. Its leadership has been rated inadequate by independent healthcare inspectors, and the NHS has taken a decision to close it and replace it with a new, different care model that will cater better for everyone. Again, both for those for whom it a medical transition will work, and, and for those for whom it won't, so I, I think it's quite hard to argue that no change is needed, and I understand that those people who work at JIDS now are in a really difficult position, it's not about pointing the finger of blame at individuals, it was an, it, it's an incredibly difficult field to work in, and, and it has become incredibly politicised, I think we all know that, there's no point denying that, but... Clinically speaking, it's been found to be wanting and it, and it requires improvement to, to better care for, for these young people. You.
6: Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. Like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event.
2: I'm interested to um, know about your expectations, if you have any, for the new service that will replace the GIDS. Um and in particular, whether it's your sense that there will be room in it for clinicians who approach the care of gender-distressed young people um, from a standpoint that at least other things being equal, it's better for young people to be reconciled to the bodies they have than to try to alter them. Um, From what we know about the direction of travel, and certainly I did a piece for Newsnight last month about uh, the new services. NHS England, the government, the hospitals that are forming part of these new hubs, they seem very, very committed to, to change and to, to provide a more, you know, better care for, 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 for young people going forward. And that's really positive. I think the delays to it are really, un, you know, more than unfortunate. We're in a, we're in a really bad situation for, the, for these young people. I mean, so I think there, there are grounds for optimism, for sure, there, there seems to be a really big commitment to, to getting things right. And um, as, as for the second part of your question, I honestly don't know. I, I don't know how to answer it, really, if I'm truly honest. Um, Certainly, Dr. Cass has emphasized the need, and, and again, very recently, she, she did a blog post for professionals with very different backgrounds to, to be part of these gender services, not, not just those who have worked with gender distressed young people before. So, I, I don't know, is the honest answer.
0: Sorry. Gentleman with uh, the blue shirt here, just on the third row.
7: Thanks. Um, Question about: um, I think you've set out that this has been an institutional failure, and I think Professor Platt called it a scandal at the beginning, and, and uh, also that it's disproportionately affecting same-sex attracted ad- adolescents. And I think in the latest GIDS intake, it's a 2.7-2.8 uh, recorded female at birth to a male ratio of, of intake, so it's disproportionately young young women. Um, you've not mentioned uh, other institutional players that might have an interest in the welfare of same-sex attracted adolescents like Stonewall or um, uh, gendered intelligence and mermaids. I wondered if you had any view on their role in uh, preventing that institutional failure or not being involved and then since you published the book and the and obviously, the Cass, uh, Hillary Cass's report, whether you've seen how they've engaged uh, either to think about the interests of same-sex attracted adolescent girls, or in the case of mermaids, maybe other, other aspects. Um, so I just wonder if you have any comments on, on their role, the ma- materiality of their role.
2: In terms of their role at JIDS, I mean, certainly Mermaids were very, very influential for a time, and their presence was was felt keenly by clinicians. Mermaids were allowed to directly refer young people to JIDS. Um, We know that Susie Green did that. We know that they were one of the organisations that put pressure on JIDS in the early two thousand or mid two thousands to to reduce the age at which puberty blockers were available, but they weren't the only ones, and that came from clinicians as well and and adult gender, you know, from 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 the UK and abroad. Um, other medics. Some clinicians spoke of a fear of a backlash from from mermaids. I think sometimes their influence is probably slightly more nuanced than than, than it's portrayed so some people said that there was this real reluctance to put pen to paper when new information came to light in case there might be a backlash from mermaids so there is an argument that the fear of mermaids might have prevented Jid's changing direction when perhaps it, it should have when, when new data or new information came to light so whether that's how the blocker seemed to be working in practice or there was a presentation given to JID staff about how if you blocked puberty too early in, in boys, it, it could lead to, to quite difficult problems for them if they surgically transitioned to, to trans women in, in creating a neovagina, vagina you wouldn't have enough tissue to work with. And these things... The clinicians that were there, they passed it on, but those that didn't or who joined the service afterwards didn't because they didn't know it because nothing was written down. So you can't pass on what you don't know. Um, and certainly, you know, one clinician in, in Leeds, based in Leeds, which is where mermaids were based as well, said, we were answering to mermaids at one point. JIDS would deny that and they'd say that clinical decisions weren't influenced. but. Certainly, clinicians say, "Look, they were in our they were in our heads. They were everywhere," and and Susie Green would, would call, would would complain. So they were definitely influential. And in more recent years, gendered intelligence have been well. It's on the website now. They 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 they, they point families and young people towards gendered intelligence. Um, now, on one level, there's nothing wrong with that. Gendered intelligence is a translate. Charity and patient voice is very, very important in the NHS. I think with Mermaids in particular and another organisation called GYRAS, the, the Gender Identity Research and Education Society, the view that some clinicians had, and Dr Anna Hutchinson says this in the book, is that that, that didn't hold the boundary there. That, that in other services where perhaps there is debate over the medical treatments and the other services she had worked in, were, were they were able to hold that that proper boundary with the support groups and be able to tell them things that they didn't always want to hear, and she didn't see that in the same way at JIDS. Um, in terms of the same-sex attraction, I mean, Stonewall, they don't really come up that much in the JIDS story, to be honest with you. I mean, I'm pretty sure that they're, that they're just, they just weren't there. I mean, I describe in the book there was a meeting between a group of LGB clinicians and... Um, Baroness Hunt, Ruth Hunt as she was at the time who was who was head of Stonewall and it was the account I heard was pretty productive but nothing really came of it she left, Nancy Kelly took over and, and that's as much as I know really I mean no one not not a clinician, not a young person has, has talked about Stonewall other than that meeting with me, I believe the Tavistock were Stonewall champions at one point but, but other than that they've I don't see, don't really see them being on the scene, in, in this sense, to be honest.
0: Thank you, Hannah. So, we have, we have the questions up and working online now. So, um, question from Mandy. Mandy, I think in large part, Hannah just, just covered uh, the answer to your question, but let's take uh, uh, another one of these questions that I have on the screen, uh, and then we'll come back to, to the audience. Uh, from an anonymous user, is there any acknowledgement in the medical and counseling profession that homophobia is such an important part of pushing kids towards a trans-identity?
2: Sorry, could you read that again? Sure.
0: Is there any acknowledgement in the medical and counselling profession that homophobia is such an important part of pushing kids towards a trans-identity?
2: Well, so there are two, two things to say. I mean, that the, the <laughs> The very old studies in this area tended to suggest that um, (coughs) any given group of of children, children and young people who had gender related distress, some would grow up to be trans adults and some wouldn't and it used to be that the, the wouldn't group tended to be much larger and of those that wouldn't, the majority would grow up to be to be gay, lesbian, or bisexual. Now, those studies are methodologically flawed as well. We can't we can't cherry pick. Like all the studies are poor, regardless of what they say. Um, the second point I would say is that is there an acknowledgement? Well, the clinicians who worked at JIDS acknowledged that it was part of what they were seeing, and yeah, I mean that's I mean that's as much as an acknowledgement as. I think there is. I mean, the JIDS website, I think, at the moment talks about sexuality and, or sexual identity and, and gender identity being, you know, interlinked and it can be very complicated. And, and they acknowledge that, that a high proportion of young people um, are same-sex attracted when, they, when, they, when, they, when they're at JIDS. But uh, that's about as far as we go, I suppose.
0: So this gentleman here, could he, I, I, a lot of hands went up. I did not have time to, to make a note of them all. Um, okay, good, thank you. Okay, um, good, got, I think I've got much to now. Over
3: to you. I'm Alan Larsson. I have read the book, and I have nothing to do with LSE. Um, and um, I was struck by the, this whole question of research and data and follow-up of outcomes and so on. I worked through the noughties for a medical research charity uh, for a rare condition, genetic condition. Uh, with a network of clinics and centers around the country uh, requires daily self-intervention to, to keep healthy. And the the whole culture, the whole medical culture, was driven by research. We had a patient registry that hugely increased uh, outcomes and uh, you know allied health professionals doing posters at international conference. Everyone was involved in research to, in order to improve outcomes. So I'm just wondering, Why that wasn't... I was struck that that wasn't the case here. I was wondering if it's different because it's not medical. It's more sort of talking therapies as the Tavistock. I don't know how better to describe it than that. Is there a different culture of research in that? Or did you get any insights from the people you spoke to as to why that might be the case, that there wasn't research in the same way?
2: Well, several people said that the Tavistock, as as the wider trust, didn't have a very strong... Focus on on research certainly. So, but, but it's quite interesting. There was a the, you know the first concerns about JIDs were raised in two thousand and five, and when those were investigated by the then medical director, one of his recommendations was um, we have to know more about what we're doing, in essence we have to collect data, we have to know, he said, these young people, and at that time you had to be 16 to, to go on the blocker, but he said, are they actually, how are these young people using that time? Is it time to think, or is it something else? We need to follow up patients. So all this was recommended in 2006, and it never happened. And Dr. David Taylor, who, who wrote that report, said there needed to be much more emphasis on research, cl- like clinical audits, both for those for whom had gone on, Physical interventions and those who hadn't, and and it didn't happen. And he would have liked to have seen the Tavistock pair with you know a, a really research-rich organisation as well, and and that didn't happen. I don't think I can answer why it didn't happen. It, there were opportunities to do it. I mean, some very senior clinicians put to me that it's expensive to do research and the Tavistock has never been awash with money it's a very very small uh, NHS trust and no one was throwing money at them to do it but others have questioned well these are children they're young people there's a acknowledgement at least initially when they started out that they didn't have any data should have been a priority but it, it, it is it's really striking that they didn't do it and, 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 and that it wasn't asked for and wasn't demanded by NHS England as well.
0: So Hannah, one more question from online and we'll go back into the, into the audience here in the old theatre. This is, this, is this is a tough one I think, so from an anonymous user, if the GIT service in clinicians are so unsafe and incompetent why has nhs england given the green light to keep the service open for another year
2: well i would start by saying i'm not saying those clinicians are incompetent or it's unsafe and in fact the way that dr cass's review was written up was that she had said the service is unsafe it's not quite what she said she said that the, the 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 having one national provider and the model, it's a fundamentally unsafe way of doing things. I I think there's a slight difference there. Um, NHS England don't want to leave those young people receiving treatment without anything, is my understanding. So the idea has always been that, that the JID stays open until there is something to replace it because otherwise what, what happens? <laughs> yeah. I mean you've 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 got the people on the waiting list receiving nothing, but but you but that's very different to and while that is absolutely terrible, it's that's different to taking someone's care away.
0: Something is better than nothing.
8: Um, Hey, uh, same-sex attracted young female here. So I'm very happy to get a microphone after being discussed for so long. Um, (laughs) I have a few issues with the narrative that you're trying to push, and especially using like my experiences in a way to push this. Because I, for one, I, I identify as a dyke. I'm happy being butch, and I'm happy with my gender affirming care. I'm the first person to say that there's not one model that is going to work for everyone involved. And you say, this panel is not for trans people. We're just discussing. But we're mainly discussing and criticizing the way that these or trans people get healthcare. So I think there is a lot to gain from including trans people into this conversation. Why isn't it about them if that's who we're discussing? If we were in the 80s and you're telling me, well, a lot of people get really confused and think they might be gay and then live a whole life being gay. And it's, it's really traumatizing, I bet. As a gay person, I completely relate. It's difficult to live as someone who you are not, but why are they the main focus of this conversation? And why aren't you being an ally first to the vulnerable people? You said you do believe there is a fraction of people, a minority, obviously, that does really benefit from this. And that's the, that's the, people have gathered enough evidence to construct a person out of these things. And maybe that, that narrative and that framework is incomplete and it doesn't give the full picture. But I don't think this gives the full picture either, especially by not focusing on those people. Because those people not receiving the care are the most vulnerable ones. Yes, people who are failed by this and such matter as well. But again, why are they the the focus? To me, you're saying this is not ideological, but you're bringing these types of talking points similar to the 80s. You're bringing up, for example, fertility and such. As a butch dyke, super alienating to me. I have known for a long time, since puberty that I don't want that life, that I do not want to have children with my body that is alienating to me. I am not that kind of woman. Even if I have the reproductive system I have, does not mean I have to use it in this way. So I just want to ask you, in which way is it more easy for a gay man to live as a trans woman? Here, anywhere in the world, or for me to live as a trans man than a lesbian? I live as both. This has no nonsense to me. Both are part of my experience, and the more gender non-conforming I am, the more difficult that experience becomes. And that is not my problem, that is the problem of society. And that should be the main focus, and I take it that you understand this. You understand the institutional issue, you understand the societal issue. Now please, I ask you, I beg you, ally with trans people, ally with people who are the most vulnerable in this case. I take it that you find this very interesting and very fascinating. Please don't fall into the ignorance. Please go to the people first that need the help with this. Other people will, co- it, then it will be, become, you know, People will be less confused because they will understand what we're trying to do. Your problem will be solved.
0: Do you, do you want to respond?
2: Is I'm there not, a particular I'm not sure there was a question there, but Is there a question that you would like me to answer? I mean, if you could be. Yes, if could, uh, absolutely. If you, could,
0: if you could specify as a question, please, that would be terrific. And,
8: Yes, absolutely. I would like to ask you... Well, I, I said here, and in, in this is how I feel about what you just said, so how do you feel about this?
0: Okay, thank you. I'm not... How many of you would like to answer that, but I'm not sure that that's...
2: I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know if you've read the book. I think it's very difficult to read the book and think that it's critical of trans people. I've spoken to trans people who are very happy with the care that they receive, and I think calling for better healthcare for everyone is not attacking trans people. So, you said to be a trans ally. I don't think there's anything in there that shows that I'm against trans people at all. Um, the whole focus of the book is about the care for being provided to children. So I would say... Maybe we'll agree to differ. I, I, I think getting it right for everyone is will benefit everybody trans people and and people who aren't trans and and as for your comments about um, sexuality I mean it's not me making this up every single clinician both those who 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 are very happy about the work they did at at JIDS and those in said that they saw this on a day to day basis collectively they've worked with Thousands of young people sat face to face with them. I think it's really difficult to discount that experience and that it doesn't mean that that's your experience, of course, but it's I find it impossible to discount that experience and and of the young people themselves there's if you've read the book, you'll know the story of Harriet who who, having transitioned, said it was not right. she was always a lesbian, and that wasn't explored I, So I think different people are having different experiences, right?
0: Thank you. I mean, as someone who spent the weekend reading the book, I would also say this is a book that cares deeply about children and and trans children. There's there's just no question about that in in my mind. Um, Okay, so we've got a a lot of hands up. Just keep them up for two minutes, because you put them up, you put them down, and I haven't written it down. I've got uh, the woman here at the front first, um, and I've got you. Okay, then I've got you, and I've got them, Patrick.
6: Hi, you said earlier that this wasn't a panel on trans health, and so there didn't need to be trans representation on this panel. um, Except for, I think, in your book, you pride yourself on the fact that a lot of the people um, were happy to be identified. Um, So, why have you held a panel without their voices here? Um, Because I think you know as you said you're not a trans person and I'm going to take a swing and say that you're not in the LGBTQ plus community at all because I have heard some ill-informed language used um, and some sort of misunderstandings here Um, and so it feels like this conversation is one-sided there isn't a balanced panel here and you could have resolved that by having some of the people who are directly
2: involved here? I mean, I might ask um, David or Lucinda because I was invited to come and speak about the book. I haven't designed the panel. I haven't... It, it, to me, it's not a panel. It's it's one person, that's me, and I'm not trans, as you say. Um, so, I mean, perhaps, perhaps <laughs> they can discuss that. I mean, I... I I didn't invite myself. I don't think it's a panel. It's one person, and perhaps that's something for LSE to, to respond to.
1: Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm happy to, um, to respond that um, um, David is an independent chair, so in a sense, that's not um, yeah clearly not part of the p- panel. And uh, this is this is a this is a book launch. It's not a is it's not a, yeah it's not a panel. Um, it's a book launch called and in conversation in order to. Provide a way of giving um, Hannah the opportunity to talk about her book. Um, so she's the author of the book. So she's talking about the book. It's not a. It's not kind of a you, it's different. Different. Um, there are different ways of doing these things. You can have a panel where there's discussions on it. Um, but I'm not. I'm not discussing it. We haven't got lots of people from different perspectives discussing it. It's simply a chance to give her. It's. It's. It's one person, and that person is the author of the book. Um, I don't think I need to say very much about myself other than I have worked um, a lot with um, them, as David indicated in the introduction, um, uh, in terms of research around um, uh, vulnerable children and young people.
0: And
2: I... Why don't I know about it? I've spent four years of my life researching it. Writing a book, is it... Jo- if journalists could only write about things they have personal experience, if we'd get nowhere. So, you don't have business <laughs> experience with it, and I feel like it's your responsibility to ensure that the voices of those people are able to contribute to this conversation as well. Because a lot of what you've said is, you know, there is evidence out there that suggests
6: otherwise, you know, less than one of seven people regret their transition.
2: Not true. We don't actually know. The The only way to answer that question is... No, it's not. So... I'm sorry, but you're incorrect there. You're incorrect. The data that points to less than 1% is so, so flawed. Let's not enter into a debate. I'm, I'm you know... We, we absolutely do not know how many people regret how many detransition we don't we can't even agree on the language it's just it's just not true i'm afraid and to say that i don't know anything about it because i'm not trans i mean, uh... I mean you
0: could i so you could, I could you, you don't
2: know, you not okay the
0: right so so just and just finally to your finally to your point um, i would just add that um, you know this is this is a wonderful conversation right and we we dedicated 45 minutes of this conversation to get everyone to ask questions and we're gonna get a lot more questions before we finish. you know uh, Hannah may even be willing to go on for another 15 minutes if we don't get through everything <laughs> even though we've got some wine outside so this is a conversation where we are so open this is LSE right this is what we do um, now to the point about my position on this panel I'm a corporate lawyer a takeover lawyer um, <laughs> Um, I I am here because uh, uh, I do this quite a lot, right? I I chair events um, uh, as part of my role as dean of the law school uh, all all, all the time. Um, uh, Sometimes I do them well, sometimes I do them less well, um, but but I have expertise in the chairing of an event. That's why I'm here. So, um, okay, Um, gentlemen here um, and, uh, and then I'll take you and then I'll take Patrick.
9: Thank you. Um, I've, I've read the book, and it was probably one of the most well-researched um, journalistic books on any field that I've read ever, um, so thank you. My couple of questions I'd like to put is, is there, you just heard about detransitioners, and somebody suggesting that might be 1%, but we know that many people were never followed up, and so your book points to the fact that there were no follow-ups. Is the current learning process, including any discussions, for, for the future service with detransitioners who are certainly prevalent in sort of online both in the UK and abroad and, and what can we learn from those detransitioners in developing the service. And my second point is that I thought that a lot of your book when you look at it kind of holistically was actually about governance failures, many alarm bells were being rung throughout by many people Um, and there were governance failures left, right and centre which continued even for example with when when after a surgeon had been spoken to at UCL, um, top surgeon in the field, um, and and pointed out that putting um, people on um, puberty blockers made it more difficult to then subsequently carry out the surgery and with more risks and complications attached to it, that it then took another several years before the guidance that they wrote up immediately was actually released to patients and, and clinicians at the clinic. And and it, so so there's a sort of a governance issue. And I have a sort of a further concern, which is, you know, we've heard somebody mention Stonewall and Mermaids and Gendered Intelligence and all these other organizations, which are, um, many of whom are involved in education, in schools, and seemingly fueling the demand um, because what they are suggesting isn't always accurate and good information about um, the outcomes and benefits of of transitioning and it sells a sort of a positive gloss to young teenagers in particular. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about the potential governance failures that we're seeing now, you know, NSPCC, childlike advice that we just read in the last few days that they're offering to children online seems to be painting a very positive gloss and whether there's actually governance and safeguarding failures that are continuing and, and making things worse.
2: Uh, there's a lot there. I, I can't comment on on other institutions and, and what they're doing, I'm afraid. I, I feel that's not not my expertise. I wouldn't be able to comment from a base of knowledge about other organisations. And similarly with what's going on in schools, I don't think that's probably my place to comment. Um, with the new services you mentioned about detransitioners, I, there hasn't been a huge amount about that. I know that in the the interim cast review, um, she mentions that she does mention detransitioners. So that may well be something that that that, that we may see again in her final report at, at the end of the year. I think on, on a more broad point, um, I was having a conversation recently with a trans research in um, Canada who's done who's who's trying to do research on detransition and I I think his argument um, and and certainly when we covered this at Newsnight it was by learning from those for whom uh, treatment hasn't worked then that's how you can make it better for those for whom it will as well you know, I, I don't think it, it doesn't it doesn't undermine <laughs> trying to best care for everybody, to, to to help those for whom it hasn't worked, and and learn from that. Um, and the governance, yes, I mean there were there were governance clear governance issues um, in this story. Um, And again, I think that the the point that you raise about um, the the information that came from James Bellringer about the difficulties for surgery, again, that's something that would benefit um, people who transition from knowing that. And it was about the reason that the the clinician in question wrote that up into a leaflet, um, which she wanted to be given to the relevant families that were considering this, was so that they could give informed consent. It wasn't to persuade or dissuade, it was just to inform. So it was, it's unfortunate that it wasn't shared for several years.
0: Yeah, (coughs) hi. Um, Now you, you, I think you might have um, answered my question already um, just now. But um, in terms of, in terms of these new services, these hubs, um, you you sort of said, you know, if if they're really, really provided to, if they're really um, committed to providing good care. how, I mean, in, in terms of giving children uh, cross-sex hormones, what is a, I mean, because yeah, you said like, um, some children uh, don't, you know, many, many people who, who take these don't, uh, or regret and many, and many, many don't, many don't regret, many do. How can we, is there a practical approach um, that we can take to determining who would benefit from these sort of
2: I haven't said that that many do regret or many don't regret. I mean, we we don't we don't know. I mean, the, of, of that's that's the honest answer. We we, we, we we don't know because because there hasn't been follow up of, of you know when we're talking about JIDs that there hasn't been follow up. We what we do know is that some people have been helped and we know that some people have been harmed. The numbers either way, we we don't know yet, and that that work is. Is is potentially being done by by the CAS review team to try and to 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 follow up Um, in terms of how do you mean you know how how we not we like how how those clinicians going forward how how can
7: we minimise the amount of people that regret I think you sort of um, you know is it is it a case
2: of Again, I'm, I'm not a clinician, so I, I don't know. But, but from what clinicians told me from their work with thousands of children, they say, well, they were very honest actually. And as as, as um, Lucinda men- mentioned earlier, they were all actually very, very honest that it, they found it impossible to know who, who would benefit and, and who wouldn't. But the way to 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 maximise potentially, you know, who would benefit was to be, to be To be open and to to talk about openly what what we know and what we don't know and what we don't know that we don't know and 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 to to, but 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 they were all very honest and said the difficulty is we can see that it, it it absolutely benefits some people and we they saw young people thrive and we can see that it doesn't benefit others and they saw young people really go quite downhill and it was impossible to pick beforehand so that 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 is the difficulty that the clinicians have relate to me.
0: And would it be okay to go five minutes over? Is that is sure, that, is that sure. okay? Is yeah. That was rather presumptuous to presume that we could, but I just want to <laughs> take, th- can we take, we're group. we've got three questions, we're going to group them and then, um, and then we will thank uh, Hannah and Cinder. So uh, I've got the woman at the back first, we're going to group them together we'll all go, and then uh, a gentleman here and then Patrick. Um, so if you could grab the mic after the first question and get it over here, that would be terrific. Thank you. You could keep them, if everyone could keep them relatively short that would be terrific, thank you.
1: Hello, um, I was just interested to know, because you put a lot of emphasis on being journalistic and unbiased, which I think is definitely good things, so I was curious to know what your thoughts were on these unbiased and journalistic findings and research being used to back a quite a biased and also unfounded narrative by people that are anti-trans. So I want to know what your feelings were about that and whether you support people taking your research that you say is unbiased and using it to like fund a biased and unbacked argument.
4: Mm-hmm. I want to ask a question about uh, those affected by this, this situation, uh, the patients. As you mentioned earlier, the uh, admission of so-called puberty blockers is on a... Uh, Spurious uh, evidential basis. Were the patients and their families fully aware of this? Or were they made aware that uh, the evidence is limited? This is sort of a clinical trial that we're going through. And my following up on that, my question would be uh, since the service has been found uh, deficient, and there are some concerns there might be long term negative health effects due to. related to bone density or fertility. Uh, could this be a situation where the NHS is open to lawsuits of medical malpractice uh, in future years because of the uh,
9: this situation? Hi, thanks. Um, I really enjoyed that. Um, very interesting discussion. <coughs> Patrick Sturgis from the LSE. Um, you've clearly uncovered uh, under any objective assessment a, a, a medical scandal here um, and yet you've received a lot of um, opposition to what you've done. We saw a protest here tonight, so obviously some people object to what they think is in the book, or what's in the book, or just the book itself. Um, you've said you didn't have any trouble at the BBC getting your reports out. Um, I've read reports that you found it difficult to find a publisher for the book. Um, I'd kind of be interested in, your, in your, you know, your experiences of getting the message out about this medical scandal. a lot to answer there it's you've got 30 seconds <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um,
2: sorry I'm, uh, so, so can you just read the, your last bit, little bit sorry I've written notes on the other ones <laughs> I was interested in
0: your reflections on, on your experience of music mm.
2: Well, well pe- people are entitled to walk out. I have no <laughs> no truck with that. Like you know, it's freedom of speech and it's freedom of expression, and that that that's fine, and um, th- that's their prerogative. Um, yes, there's been a, you know there's been some discussion about how many publishers turned it down, and and. Uh, delighted that, that that Swift didn't and, and and Mark from from Swift is here this evening um, but but actually the book of those who've read it has been really positively received and in the spirit it was you know and taken in, in 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 the way it was in, intended um you know, it's been it's been favourably reviewed from from far left to, to to right, from the Morning Star, the Guardian, the New Statesman, the Observer, through to you know the FT, through to to the the, the Times, the Sunday Times, the Mail, and the Telegraph. So I, I think when that happens, I think that does say something about this not being an attack on trans people or identity, but but how part of the NHS has not functioned as well as it could have. Um, And, you know, I'm here tonight and people can disagree with me and I hope we've had a respectful conversation and, you know, no one's blocked me saying anything. And yeah, some publishers didn't want to take it. One did, so we're fine. <laughs> um, the point about lawsuits, there, was a, there has been some coverage about that, I, I, I can't comment, I mean the numbers were, were slightly um, questionable, used in, in coverage by another newspaper. Um, I think there are two law firms looking at it, from what I can see, it's very early days, I, I don't really know much more than that, it's not for me to comment. Um, were patients told about puberty blockers? Well certainly before any evidence came down, I've seen people's assessment reports both of those who had blockers and, and were happy and those that, that that had blockers and were not happy, they, they did used to be described as fully reversible, that, that sort of, that changed a little bit over the time and, and now we know that the NHS official guidance is that, that while they are described as physically reversible little is known about the long-term side effects um, when used in children to treat gender dysphoria. Um, We don't know about the impact on long-term on bone density or on on brain development. I mean what we know about bone density is that obviously while a young person is on the blocker that rapid accrual of bone density that, that, that you would get in puberty is paused. Now the introductions of hormones whether that's your body's biological hormones or synthetic hormones does increase bone density again so what we don't know is so so a young person who's been on the blocker who then goes on to hormones we can call them gender affirming cross-sex whichever we to use but but that bend, that bone density will start growing again but but what what the studies don't tell us yet is whether um we don't know yet whether you would reach the peak that you would have had you not had that period on the blocker so we just we don't know that at the moment um and i think actually in terms of what families were told i think it would depend on individual clinicians actually i mean it's something that comes up frequently in the book that that different clinic, clinicians acted very differently and they might give more information or less information and, and 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 that was one of the difficulties and that's something again identified by by dr cass in 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 her review. Um, as for the book um, being used by others, I think, I hope you were saying that that, 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 that the book itself is, is impartial and evidence-based, and, but I think you were saying that, that it's been used by actors who perhaps want to deny people healthcare. and um, Without specific examples, it's difficult for me to, to, to speak to any particular person, but I think, speaking far more broadly on any subject, I think if journalists didn't cover topics that, that should be covered because we're talking about health and safety and things in the public interest, if we didn't cover things because people might use them for their own purposes, then we wouldn't cover anything at all. And, yeah. I love it. I, th- I, can't, I can't control how other people use the words. I mean, I have seen things that are very taken out of context and without the caveats that I have in the book and without any background, and that's, that's unfortunate and quite annoying at times. Um, and sadly, I can't control it.
0: Thank you, Hannah. I think we have taken uh, enough of your time. Uh, before we go outside, there is a drinks reception outside to which you're all uh, invited, and there are copies of the book to be able to be purchased, and Hannah will uh, also be able to uh, sign them. Uh, before we leave, first of all, uh, thank you so much to you all uh, for coming tonight. Thank you to everyone online uh, for your questions and joining in uh, at the conversation. But most importantly of all, please join me in thanking uh, Lucinda and thanking especially Hannah, for what I thought was a really wonderful conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening.